And the types of facilities that we really like that we're building right now, um, we've got a couple that are open and operating and a couple under development right now. We really like the full campus aspect of it. Okay. Where you go in as an independent living resident okay. and you either live, we, we, a lot of our campuses will build with cottages where basically they have their own house that they live in, but it's, it's independent living so they can have their home health services and all that. But, you know, maybe they have a go-kart to, to drive around and go to the, go to the dining room or the bar or whatever it is. And you're there in independent living. There's also higher density. So the apartments um, in the independent living as well, where you still have your own autonomy and all that, but you, you know, you have the levels of care if you need them. And then you progress to a point where you need assisted living. You know, maybe one, you know, it's a couple and one passes away and they want, they need more help than, than the other one did. So then that would progress into assisted living and that would be on the same campus. And then connected to that would also be memory care. So essentially, if it's, you know, if you're the adult child, which is the person whose parent is the one who goes into the facility, you would have them go live there and they live there ostensibly. Uh, you know, to the end because it's all in the same place and they get all everything that they need on the same campus in whatever setting that they need. They may never leave independent living yeah. and they may be in their cottage for the rest of their lives and be perfectly happy and never need anything more than that and maybe increase their levels of care, but that, that may be perfectly fine for them. So we like that. We like that campus feel where it's got everything that you need and, and essentially it's the, you know, the last place that you could could live for the next 30, 40 years. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me on the Fort today. I am so excited to have Nick Ferris with me today, who is the co-founder and partner of MedCore Partners in Dallas. MedCore is a full-service healthcare firm and also owns and operates senior living facilities across the country. Today's episode is fantastic. We talk about all things healthcare real estate. I learned more than I ever have in this episode. We talk about why healthcare firms uh locate where they locate. We talk about why buildings are designed the way they're built. We talk about some of the deals that they've done. They're both acquiring and developing senior facilities across the country. We talk about the different levels of healthcare and why they're important. We talk about what COVID presented and the challenges that it presented to the healthcare industry, especially in the senior space, where those folks were the most at risk. This was a fascinating episode. Thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey, and I hope you enjoy. Nick, welcome to the show today, my man. Thank you, sir. So Nick and I go back, I guess, since college, but we were in a class together in 2007. And before we dive into the badass business that you started, I want to start with a little story about a project we worked on that you brought up when we were kind of preparing for today's mm -hmm. episode. So Give us the the high level highlights of this awesome marketing project sure. we worked on. Well, I like to think that it altered our trajectory forever. Yeah, um, because we uh, were randomly selected to be partners in a marketing project that we had. Um, both of us being marketing wizards, it was bound to be a success. <laughs> but um, yeah, we didn't know each other at the time. We had a group of five or six guys, and uh, you and I kind of 
clicked and started working together on a lot of the things that uh, that needed to be delivered. And actually, my uh, we had to come up with a product and then we had to market it and come up with a commercial and all the different things that are needed for that. So obviously, we were lost. But my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, came up with a product that involved, um, and correct me if any of these details are not exactly uh, correct, but she came up with a product that was a spray that you could spray on your clothing that would keep you from getting stains and specifically smells on it. So if you go into a Mexican restaurant or you go out for a smoke, that it kept you from getting that smell on you. And uh, we called it Fabricast, which was obviously brilliant. And... um, (laughs) And so we came up with this whole concept and uh, she deserves credit for that. But uh, I had a a friend of mine who was in a band who did T-shirt printing at the time come up with our logo, (laughs) which was great. It kind of looked like, um, I don't know, kind of like the Looney Tunes logo, but, but it looked good. And we stuck it on a starch can, came up with a whole way that we could commercially produce it and have it given to different companies and all that. And and then we did the the most compelling part is we did a commercial, which you were the star of, obviously, because <laughs> um, you were the eye candy of the group. Um, and it was you as a big NASCAR fan smoking cigs in your liv- living room. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember the entire premise, but uh, a buddy of mine at TCU did the filming for us and edited it for us and put in the NASCAR sounds and all that. And it was a really well done project. So we presented that and I think we did well on it. I, I think, think we, we did. I think we made an A in the class. So. And we're here now. And we're here. And this is, it, you know, yada, yada, yada. And here we are. And here we podcast are. 20 years later. Or and as I'm sitting here thinking for anybody listening <laughs> to this, it still, I don't think has been created the way we thought. This is an opportunity for somebody yeah, to so, make hundreds of dollars. <laughs> literally hundreds <laughs> of dollars. Of hundreds of dollars. That's a, It's funny that you say that. We, um, and my company now, we always joke because we started from you know nothing and have have grown it and grown the number of people and all that. And we laugh because there's shows like billions out there. And especially early on, we always joke that we should have a reality show and call it thousands <laughs> and just be like, oh, next time on thousands. And then it cuts to a scene of us going, but should we print it in color? Because it's 20 cents extra per copy. And uh, so I think thousands also, if someone wants to take that idea and run with it, I think thousands has a lot of merit. So. Could make thousands of dollars. Could literally thousands of dollars. I love it. We're, we're creeping up towards tens of thousands now. So I'm not trying to brag. It's just that where is, we've gone. That is small business 101. Should we print it in color? or? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about that business that you got started. So we clearly set our lives up by doing that project, yes. getting an A. I believe it was Mr. Tom- or Dr. Thompson. Yes, yes. Um, he was also the career paths guy at TCU. Yep. Awesome. So what did you do after college um, and what are you doing now? So actually during college, when we were when we were working together on this project and little did I know you had already started your real estate empire, mm-hmm. um, I wasn't quite that far along, but I was. I started interning and then working full time. Basically by my junior year, I was working full time. Uh, with a group that was doing research and analytics for healthcare 
uh, specific real estate projects. So yeah. there's a privately held uh, real estate investment trust that we're working with, basically helping raise funds um, and by finding the best markets to, to build things in and to acquire things in, we're finding all of those different things and helping raise capital for that. So what we were doing during that time is figuring out what are the axiomatic principles of the healthcare industry to help us find the data that we need to be able to show that a project is going to be successful. So I really started that when I was in college and had a, a couple of folks that I worked with that were great mentors of mine. And that went very well for a number of years. And then that ended up me leaving there to kind of do more my own thing as a boutique consulting firm. Um, and where I was working with uh, primarily real estate groups that were in specifically in healthcare. Okay. And they would come to me and they would buy feasibility studies and reports that I would put together if they were trying to go out and see if there was a physician need in a market or if there was a bed need in the market for any type of facility across the continuum of care, whether it was a general acute care hospital all the way to a LTAC, long-term acute care hospital, and everything in between. And so I would put together these reports and charge a bunch of money and consulting fees for that and, you know, move on to, to the next project. And so I did that for a number of years and I had a, a lot of great clients, a lot of the big guys in that industry. Um, a few of them I gravitated towards. One of them kind of became uh, what I call my friend tour. He was a good friend of mine and a mentor uh, of mine. And we really connected. He's a good, strong Christian guy that I looked up to. We would go to lunch together a lot and just you know, share life and talk about our experiences and just loved hanging out with the guy and never had any designs on us working together, but we would talk things through together. And, you know, hopefully he got some value out of his conversation <laughs> with me too. But there came a point where I was going to break out and do something new and, and thought about going, you know, maybe into brokerage, getting my realtor's license and joining up with another shop. And I had a few different opportunities that I was looking at. And I was talking to him about it and we both kind of had the idea at the same time is what if we could work together? And that was obviously scary, but exciting. And so I had to have the conversation with my wife of what if we never make any more money again? How do you feel about that? This is pre-kids. Um, so she was cool with it, said, I trust you. And um, which is what we need, you know, as husbands, we need the wife to, to give us the okay. Otherwise it never would have happened. She gave us the okay. And and that was 2013. Um, and Kyle Libby, who is the uh, the friend tour I was talking about, um, he had started uh, a brokerage shop called Medcore Realty. Okay. And our vision for Medcore, um, as it was at the time, very small, was what if I join up with you, I get my realtor's license, you be a broker, I'll be a broker, we'll go out together and I'll continue to do the research and analytics as sort of a, you know, half and half responsibility where we can work with physicians who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford a, you know, X tens of thousands of dollars worth of reports and analytics, but we already have that expertise in house. So we'll provide it. It'll be a competitive advantage for us and a huge value add for our clients. And, you know, we'll see what happens. So when we both were felt very strongly about that vision, uh, we got our wives together and they hit it off because again, that's a really important component as well. Um, and then we partnered in 2013. And then in 2014, we were actually working with a couple of other guys that were clients of mine um, that were more on the development acqu acquisitions, 
uh, finance side of things. And they had started their own shop and they had worked with Kyle and they were clients of mine back at another real estate development company back in the day. And uh, we all knew each other very well. And I had worked with them in my consulting practice as well as Kyle. And this is Michael and Brian. And we were fortunate enough to get a project that had been generated by brokerage. Kyle needed somebody to do the development side of things. So we started talking to them and the, the development worked out very well. And we, you know, the idea kind of clicked for all four of us is what if we combine the research analytics that I do, the brokerage that Kyle does, the development acquisitions and all of those services that go on that side, the financing side, what if we all combine together and form ostensibly a full service real estate company specifically focused on healthcare. And we ended up doing that in 2014. And so that's been the last seven years. So it started as an idea with your friend tour yeah. has now grown to MedCore Partners, which is a full service healthcare real estate firm. That's I think right. you said yesterday, you're now at 25 people, but yes. not to hold you to it. Yeah, it's something like that. Well, I say that this sounds funny, but we've hired quite a few people in the last few months. So the, you know, the number is rising, fortunately, and we've got another person who's supposed to start here in the next few weeks. So um, we're very fortunate. I mean, it, it's funny, we're, we're fortunate that we all just happen to be people that had specialized, you know, yeah. that's something that, that you hear a lot is get a specialty, get a niche and pursue it. You've done that with industrial yeah. very successfully, which by the way, I think it's worth noting, we haven't really kept in touch per se for the last however many years that we've been graduated, at least four or five years since we graduated. Yeah. <laughs> if not, and the gray hair. Just yeah, no, that's right. The more kids and the more gray hair. But I've followed you from afar and, and been wildly impressed with everything that you guys have done. And, you know, I see see what y'all do. And I, you know, try to model some of the things that we do after mm -hmm. what y'all do. So um, congratulations on all your success. And that's exciting to to be here and all the different things that you're doing. I appreciate it, man. And I and like I told you yesterday, uh, we followed each other on LinkedIn and Twitter. Yeah. Um, but there I've, is a utility for LinkedIn. There is. And, Twitter. and it brought us together. That's right. But what you've done is uh, is also pretty incredible. And I really want to dive into it because I know so little about healthcare real estate. Um, I'm going to ask a really broad question to start. Okay. When I hear healthcare, mm -hmm. and even hearing you talk about long-term acute and short or physician um, or finding things for physicians, what do you guys focus on, and what's kind of the general spectrum that falls into healthcare? Sure. No, that's a great question. A lot of people don't know because um, whether it's brokerage or development um, or investment, there are people that are in real estate that will do a doctor deal. You yeah. know, they'll work on a medical office building and or they'll sell a facility for a, a doctor and they'll say, oh, we do medical real estate. Well, yeah. our focus is is exactly and only in healthcare. So okay. what that encompasses is everything from, and a lot of it is we think of it as acuity levels and acuity in healthcare is basically severity. Okay. So if you are going to a family practitioner because you've got a cough or you're getting a checkup, that's the lowest level of acuity you could possibly have. Okay. Um, if you're going to a skilled nursing facility and you're staying there for six months because 
you have all kinds of illnesses and comorbidities, that's a very, very high level of acuity. And there's everything in between. And we really touch on all of those things. Okay. So, and it also depends on our business segment as well. So for brokerage, we're tending to work with physicians. Now we also work with health systems. We've been very fortunate to work with health systems, but we'll work with physicians and helping them find a new office. If they're just a physician that's breaking off from a group and they want to go find their own individual office, they need 2,000 square feet in Fort Worth, we'll help them go identify that from a tenant rep perspective. And so from the research analytics, we will go out, we'll look at what are the other family practitioners, if they're a family practitioner, what are the other family practitioners in the market? Where is it that they um, have the most competition? Is there a demand? What are the demographics? So is there uh, enough income? Is there enough commercial insurance coverage versus Medicare and Medicaid? Because there's different level of reimbursements for each of those. We'll look at the growth. We'll look at the age segments. So different types of specialties will have different age segments. If you're a pediatrician, you obviously want the zero to 14 population because yeah. that's that's who your target is. You don't care about the, the greater swath of the population. If you're an urgent care, a child urgent care, you may want zero to four population. So we'll look at that as well. So every single one of them has, if you're an internist, you're looking at 65 plus. So there's a variety of different things from a demographic perspective that we'll look at there, but that's part of our brokerage, a part of our business. And a lot of that will spring developments. If you're, if that same physician says, I can't find anything that I like, I want to build something. Well, then our development team will jump in and they'll build it for them. Got it. Um, and we can come in and we can build and own it for them. We can fee development, fee develop it for them. But that, you know, that's kind of all part of our business as well. And then you get into hospitals and other types of facilities like that. So yep. there's short-term acute care hospitals, which are the lowest level of acuity. That's a three-day uh, typical inpatient stay. Then you've got rehab, rehabilitation hospital, which is different than like drug rehab, which can be outpatient or inpatient, but that's a 13-day stay, for example. Then you've got long-term acute care. You've got behavioral health, which are psych hospitals. So there's a lot of different things from the health system perspective. And then there's a lot in between those two, which is you've got ambulatory surgery centers, which is an outpatient surgery. You need to go get an endoscopy done or you need to go get your knee scoped and you're out. So ASCs, which is what we call ambulatory surgery centers, uh, MOBs, there's imaging, there's kind of everything in between there. And then we bridged the gap after we started MedCore and, and all of us had kind of touched in this a little bit, but into seniors housing which is a different type of healthcare because you've got everything from your residential independent living folks who just don't want to maintain their house anymore and they want services and they want the uh, they want the social aspect of being in a, in a facility where meals are provided for them and, and all of that and everything's perfectly fine. And they may add in some home health type services, levels of care, they call it in yeah. seniors housing. And then we've got assisted living, which is where they need assistance with activities of daily living, all the way down to memory care, which is where they have Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, unfortunately, kind of the, the, you know, the the last progression of, of going down the path of Alzheimer's and those types of facilities as well. So we own those uh, through acquisition and development as well. So that's, um, interrupt me if any of this, no, is, this um, is boring or way too much information. Hell no, this is the, awesome. <laughs> that's the whole spectrum of it. And I've got a lot of questions. Okay. First on just, I'm a physician and I'm leaving 
I'm branching off and I come to you. Are you pulling all this data off of some software that you subscribe to? Or are you hodgepodging it together from a lot of different sources? How do you put all this together? Yeah, that's a great question. So what we found, this is going to sound counterintuitive. What we found is the hodgepodge approach is actually the most effective, the most accurate. I wouldn't say it's the most efficient, Yeah. but what we found over the years is so through, through various iterations of the types of companies that I've worked with and the type of consulting I've done, uh, in the past, when I was in, in college and shortly thereafter, we were developing software that allowed us to do exactly that, go to any market in the country and, uh, overlay the different demographics, look at the different types of facilities be able to un- really fully understand the market that you're in and then move on to the next one, move on to the next one, run reports, run dashboards, pull lists, all of those different kinds of things, which is great. And, yeah. and we had great success in doing that. And a lot of clients, that's uh, primarily how I met uh, what are now my partners. But what I found in doing that in different iterations of that type of system is you're always beholden to the, the latest, most refreshed data which is never moment by moment. Yep. And that's good for a large scalable platform that you want to have a hundred clients. Right. But it's not as effective. And I'm, you know, I'm not in any way disparaging those types of systems because they have great utility. Yep. Um, but if you're working with an individual doctor that wants to go into a market and they want to know where all the physicians are, especially in like an emerging market, like a Frisco, a Salina, a Prosper, and like in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, and there's uh, emerging markets like that all around the country, it's very difficult to get an up-to-date database from one of these large national providers that will drill into all of those different levels without having some type of mistake. And that's not to say that the way we do it is infallible, but you have a much higher level of certainty that you're getting it right when you're cross-referencing a variety of different data sources. Got it. So we'll use every, you know, we'll acquire, you know, for for instance, and there's a lot of different data sources. So for instance, a, a physician data source. And there's a few of them out there. There's some big dogs and there's some smaller ones, but you acquire that and they update it for you quarterly. Right. And they're doing using call centers and they're pulling what's called MPI data, which is the national provider enumerator system, which is every physician that has a Medicare provider number has to submit their information to Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS. They get an enumeration number in that system. And that's a way of keeping track. It's basically the same number for everybody throughout the country. So we know everyone has that. Now that's not updated as quickly as their Google business location. Because if they change their locations or they open up a new office, they want their patients to find them, but they're not necessarily gonna submit all the proper paperwork to CMS in a timely manner. So we may miss a whole swath of physicians that have moved into a new area. They change their online presence, but they haven't changed it with the major data sources. And you're waiting a quarter worst case scenario, you're waiting a quarter for that to be updated. Yep. So that was another thing with with MedCore and getting away from the the consulting business and and really doing it as partnering with our clients. Like you said, the the physician, what we can do is we can really dive into those specific markets, 
find all the different data sources that we would use to put into a system anyway, but update them in as, in as close to real time as we can possibly get. And then if we, you know, for some reason we miss something, we can go back in and add it back in. And the other thing is it's not punishing our clients because we're not saying, okay, well, now we're going to charge you iteratively more, yeah. uh, incrementally more for that specific data set and and then we can you know we can provide that level of information so there's so the very long-winded answer to your question is we found that if we can cross-reference a variety of different data sources both both publicly available and ones that we get through acquisition that's really the best and most accurate way of doing it and how how soon are they coming to y'all before they're kind of making a search is it years before or they call you and they're like, hey, I'd like to open up something in six months? Yeah, um, the six months is great. A lot of them, it's two weeks. My lease is expiring, yeah. um, which is not great, but we can still work with that. Um, but it's really everything. Um, some will be years ahead. And what we'll say from the research analytics side is, yes, we're happy to put together a report for you to show you these markets, but just know when it's time for you to move, things could be very, very different. Yeah. So um, that's what we think. And same thing from the real estate side. So the brokerage team will say, yeah, we can pull options for you. We can look at lease rates and everything in that market, but it's not going to be the same two years from now. So we're happy to look for you and then we'll, we'll keep you um, in mind and we'll update you every so often. But there's not a whole lot we can do at that time. Six months is great. That's a sweet spot. And you probably asked that because you know real estate. But um, <laughs> that way we have enough time to, if they're trying to decide, do I want to get out of my current lease or do I want to renew? Yeah. So we can get in and help them renew their lease because we know how to communicate with the landlords and say, you know, we think we can push here. We can't push here. We can make sure and get you in a good place. If you've got your rent bumps that are happening here or they're trying to do something wild, we can jump in and say, hey, look, we work with all the REITs and we, you know, a lot of the different landlords, we know this is market, this isn't market. We can help them negotiate that. And then if it becomes a situation where they've outgrown their space or they're not happy with their space, or they're not happy with their landlord or whatever the situation is, we can help them go find the new market, the new location. A lot of them will have non-competes. So we'll help them, you know, we'll map out their non-compete and find markets that that fall outside of that. Um, and then we can help them from that perspective. So it's really any, any, any time. And we just have less leverage the closer it is to their lease. Renewing. So if, if we take DFW, for example, mm -hmm. which has lots of markets, I mean, Mansfield, South Lake, Frisco, Plano. Are most doctors coming to you saying, well, maybe the first question is, are they, I, I would like to think that all doctors are motivated by wanting to care for patients. Only that. Only that. Not by money. That's correct. But are they coming to you saying, hey, we want to be in DFW and we want you to find us a spot to open up a pediatric clinic? Or are they saying, look, Nick, we want to be in Plano, find us the best spot in Plano? Mm -hmm. Or do they come to you with kind of a broad brush saying, just get us somewhere in DFW, we're happy to be wherever? Right. Sorry that this is the answer every time, but it's really all of the above. Yeah. So there are people that come to us and say, we love Plano, we want to go there. And then we can maybe help them find the sub market in Plano and pick that out. And then it's a negotiation tactic for us to, to go in and, and work that on the brokerage side. Um, some will say we like the Northeast, 
you know, Plano Frisco, we w- maybe would go out to Prosper Salina, let us know, and then we can kind of highlight that area and show them where the options are, where the competition is, where the referral sources. That's another big component is if you're a specialist, you want to find referral sources. Okay. So most people don't walk into an orthopedic surgeon unless you know them and say, hey, I need to get my knee scoped. Yeah. You go to your family practitioner, they go, Ooh, that knee doesn't look good. Let me send you to a specialist. Uh-huh. They go within their network. Then you go to them. So referral sources are huge. Okay. Um, so that's an important component as well, kind of going back to what we were talking about before. But we'll have people that want to look at a specific area. And then we'll have other, one of the things that's emerging for us that we've found lately, and especially, I think part of this is pandemic. Part of this is just groups understanding that um, how strong healthcare is and somewhat recession resistant it is. But we've seen a lot of private equity infusing physician groups to go out and try to grow their trajectory and plant locations all over the country, all over the state, different MSAs, all of that. So we've had a lot of those come lately, um, fortunately, where they say, we like the Houston market. We need you to tell us where to go. Yep. And then we'll take the whole area. We'll figure out what specialists they are. Um, say they're a dermatologist. We'll figure out where all the other dermatologists are. And then we'll figure out where the family practitioners are that would refer patients to them. Then we'll look at the patients that are between the ages of 50 and 64, because that's when you tend to have more skin issues and that may be their target. And by the way, we always work with our clients and let them tell us what their patient base is. We never presume to say, well, I know exactly who you're going to see and we'll do this report and we'll click a button, which also goes back to the more consultative approach that we take. We're not just clicking a report and handing them the report. We put together a custom report based on our clients. Um, But we'll look at the whole area based on all those different characteristics and then we'll rank all the different markets. So we'll we'll put together a a matrix of different characteristics of here's population-based characteristics, growth, volume, current projected, the age group that you're looking at, current projected growth. We'll look at affluence, you know, median household income, commercial insurance coverage, back to your point about, you know, they want to, they want to serve their patients. And, and I will say by and large, I was making a joke earlier, yeah. but by and large, they really are passionate about helping their clients, but it doesn't hurt if they can make a little money while they're doing it. For I mean, sure. You know, they are capitalists, a lot of them. Well, so especially private equity back. Well, that, yes, then they have to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now they now they're in a situation where they don't want to make money. They have to. Yep. And that and that all luckily those all feed into each other, which is nice. But you know, affluence characteristics, so it's the high reimbursing payers. And just just so you know, it's commercial tends to have the the highest reimbursement. Okay. And Medicare, which is for the 65 plus population, and Medicaid, which is for, you know, in indigent care or folks that don't have the 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 ability to afford insurance. So it kind of goes down as as, to, as far as reimbursement. So if they want the higher reimbursing payers, they want to be in an area that has co- high commercial insurance coverage. And usually those go together, the affluence and the commercial insurance coverage, but not always. So there may be a blue collar market that's down here on income, but they're all, you know, they're all uh, employees of GM. Yeah. And so they have great commercial insurance coverage or, or whatever it is. Um, that's probably a dated example, but so does anybody kind of want to be in an area that doesn't have Medicaid or doesn't have commercial insurance? Like, what room is there for a physician in markets where there's basically no insurance coverage? 
those, some of them will have specific models. We worked, uh, for instance, we worked with a dental group that focused on indigent care and they focused on, they really weren't looking for any, and it was, it was pediatric dentistry. Okay. Um, and then there's groups that are more of an outreach type program that just want to serve the underserved communities Yep. and they may have grants and that's how they're making their money or they just love the people yep. and they want to go and serve uh, or they've been really successful and now they're focusing their energy on that. Um, so we've seen that as well. So it's really, I would say we don't see as many of those, but there's definitely people out there. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. When we started to look under the hood of these real estate investment managers, that were telling us about their problems, one of the things that we identified was that kind of the operating system of record for managing a lot of the most important information was still spreadsheets. They have never been designed to be a system of record, right? And and when we when we started looking at kind of why real estate reporting was the way that it was, what we found is that spreadsheets were being used as a system of record. And the problem that that created was it makes it really hard to take this information, get the information out of spreadsheets and get it into the hands of the people who need it the most, which are your investors. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjuniperSquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. You mentioned Axiometric. You've talked a lot about the data that you're pulling, which is fascinating. Um, I've learned already a ton. If I was to take like a an orthopedic surgeon, mm-hmm. That to me as just a novice sounds like it's not really age driven or maybe it is like younger people tend to break their bones more, maybe older people because they're fragile. Right. Yeah. Well, what's an orthopedic surgeon looking for? Yeah. Well, it depends. I mean, the 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 thing the things that you pointed out are great. I mean, if they're sports medicine, yeah. they want the younger population. So like in DFW, they might go to like South Lake, South where Lake or got, Allen yeah. or one of these where they've got these big time programs that kids are participating in. And there's now even um, urgent care ortho. Okay. Um, where a kid breaks his leg, he doesn't have to go to the hospital. He can go to an ortho specific you know, ortho specialist who is in an urgent care setting or a freestanding ER setting. So there's there's that part of the orthopedic surgeons. Um, and then there's the older population and, you know, more geriatric medicine and all that. And they're more likely to have bones break and and different things um, like that. And, and just in general, the older population, I know I'm not breaking any news here, but they have more comorbidities, they have more uh, medical issues. And so they tend to drive most of the demand, Um, but it depends on what they're seeing. So if it's ortho spine, for example, you're skewed towards the older population, because if you need discs in your back or you need a you know, fusion, you're probably in your 60s. 70s, Tiger Woods 80s. loves that. Type oh, of yes, exactly. They actually, that's what most people are targeting is uh, ultra wealthy billionaire golfers. <laughs> um, and we've had a lot of people come to us for that. And now that PGA is going in Frisco, we've got a perfect market. For there you them. go. You but, do. <laughs> but, but generally speaking, I mean, a lot of them are looking for, for the same things. You want a growing population. You don't want it to be stagnant. Um, you want uh, that specific targeted age group that you're looking at, 
orthos, obviously, if they're if they're cutting, um, then there's high reimbursements and especially commercial insurance coverage. And then to go along with that, you want median household income that's at a level where they have disposable income. So if the, if they're getting an elective type ortho, I mean, a lot of people will go forever without getting their back fixed. But if they have the money to do it, then they'll do it. I mean, I think that's pretty much yeah. just, you know, human nature. So does like Blue Cross Blue Shield publish data every year that's like, here are all the residents in Texas that are covered by Blue Cross. And you can go pull that data and say, you know, this county right here is pretty well covered up. Some of them do. So Blue Cross is pretty good about providing their data to some of the data sources that we acquire. And so we can get those numbers. Um, We also have the American Community Survey, which will just, uh, it surveys the population and and tells if they have insurance at all, whether it's commercial, whether it's Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Medicare, Medicaid, or some combination of those. So we'll kind of carve up the data to, to, to view it the way that we need to see it. Most of that's not public. So you would need to acquire that. And Blue Cross can charge a lot of money to tell where their, where their patients are and where they're coming from and all that. So, um, so we need to acquire that information, but, but we do that through a variety of different sources. All right. Last question, kind of on the physician search Mm -hmm. on this the, the one thing that stood out was the referral sources. Mm-hmm. You're going to the orthopedic saying, hey, if you go right here in this Houston area, you have eight pediatrics that could possibly be referring to you. Yes. Is it upon y'all to make that introduction to all the pediatrics or they're going to go do all that on their own once they pick the spot? Yeah, they're going to do that on their own. Okay. So there's there like anything else, there's politics. So if you're part of the you know, Baylor Scott and White family, you're probably going to stick with Baylor Scott and White physicians, not, not universally, yeah. but some of them, if you're part of Methodist, then Methodist physicians will probably send you patients if you're uh, Texas Health Resources. So there's a, a political piece to it to some degree and just logic. That's not even, yeah. you know, I like you, I don't like you. It's just, hey, we've got this network, so yeah. why not utilize it? Um, but they, they do all of that. We'll provide information where if they say we want to know who and where are all the family practitioners because they're really the gatekeepers of the patient. Yeah. I mean, like I said, you go to your pediatrician or your family practitioner and they distribute you where you go, OBGYN, kind of same thing, internist, same thing. Those are really the primary care physicians. Yep. You go to them and then you're distributed that way. It's incumbent upon them to to go out and, and network. We'll provide that information. We'll say, Here's all the primary care docs. Here's all their locations. Here's all their phone numbers. Have at it if you want to. But we, you know, we don't get into into marketing specifically for them. But we'll provide them everything that they need to. We'll even say, here's this physician. Here's their name and contact information. And here's what kind of market they're in. Yeah. So if they're seeing the patients that are in that area that are highly affluent, that have commercial insurance coverage, it's growing gangbusters in that market you probably want to talk to them because they most likely have the types of patients that you're going to want to have sent to you right. in addition to the age groups and all that. Okay. This, this internist is around all of the 65, 75, 85 plus um, patients that are in the market. They're probably going to send me a variety of those. Same thing with senior living. I mean, if we put them uh, near where the seniors housing facilities are in the market from independent, uh, is assisted and memory care, skilled nursing, all of that. Those are all helpful components. So each, each client is a little bit different. They'll, yeah. you know, every now and then we'll get something completely out of the blue and they'll say, oh, uh, we need ages. I can't think of an example off the top of my head. We need ages 34 
to um, 48 because we have this procedure that we do that's just been FDA approved. And that's exactly, and it's going to be single moms uh, with disposable income. So we'll right. put together all those different data points and we'll try to provide it to them in a way that that will help them make that decision. But no, it's incumbent upon them to to make all those uh, connections and decisions in the market. It's fascinating. As it relates to all the different types of buildings that y'all build, mm-hmm. is it usually... I mean, when we first started this conversation, you you rattled off like 10 different types of facilities. What is the the big drivers of what changes the facility? Is it layout? Is it just what the client wants and how big they are? But as I'm thinking of all these, it's like I think of most doctors. I show up, I wait in the lobby. You walk me back to the scale and then tell me how much weight I've gained. <laughs> and then you go sit me in this room. And I get checked up on, or I go to a hospital and still I wait in the lobby and I, then I get wheeled down into a hospital room. What are the big drivers that change the, the makeup of these buildings? So it's, it's really these physicians and a lot of them are very focused on uh, the future and what's the best way to deliver care. I mean, there's a lot of things going on right now with telehealth that makes it easier to see a physician. There's urgent care, you know, doc in the box, there's freestanding ERs, there's all different types of facilities. So they're really focused on the patient experience. Okay. So they really have an idea of how they want it to be laid out. They conceptualize the patient experience, how it's walked through. And, uh, you know, you'd be impressed when you hear these physicians and their staff talk about how they want it all to be laid out, how how it will go. Then we'll bring in consultants. Uh, there's a lot of great architecture firms out there that will either have a healthcare division or will focus uh, exclusively on healthcare. And they work with all the different groups out there and they've figured out what works and what doesn't work. And so we'll pair them with the best match for them. And then they will make those determinations. And so, you know, how much waiting room do you need? How do you want the flow to be as a patient goes in? There's a, a sick entrance and then a well entrance and, you know, all those different things. And they want it to be that way. So that's kind of the the clinical space. Right. And then there's the surgery center, which is how big do you want your the operating rooms to be? How many operating rooms? Where's the recovery area? I mean, all those different things. And they basically conceptualize that for us. And we just help them cut down on costs. We'll wor- and then we'll bring in a GC and we'll work with the GC to try to value engineer as much as we can, um, you know, while still allowing them to have what they need. Right. Um, but it's really driven by the physicians, which are driven by the patient experience. Okay. And then let's just walk through it, how a deal would work. Not where y'all are fee developing, but you are kind of build the suit and then you're going to own after. So I'm a, a physician or I come to you and I say, hey, this is the facility I want, or maybe I don't know exactly what I want, but I want you to own it and develop it. Mm-hmm. What am I in for? Yeah. So typically we'll figure out, I mean, depending on where they're starting, we'll help them figure out where they want to go. Okay. Um, that's kind of the research analytics component. We'll figure out what market they want to be in. Then it's figuring out, okay, do they have do they have physicians in tow already or do they need help identifying physicians in the market to bring in or bring other physicians in? Then it's, do they want to invest? We always let- Can I stop our, you real quick? Sure. Go a little deeper on 
they might need to find physicians. Oh, sure. So, so I just naturally assumed I was already showing up with all the doctors. How does that work? That So that will happen a lot of times. Okay. So they'll already have the physicians. These are the physicians that are going to do surgeries in this surgery center. I'm thinking of a surgery center. Okay. Maybe it's a surgery center anchored medical office building. Okay. So a lot of times they'll have all the physicians, but sometimes they'll say, we really like this market. We like the Sherman market but we don't have physicians already lined up to to do the surgeries there. Got it. So they know they want to do a project and they have the capital allocated to it, but they need to find those surgeons to be able to do those cases. Got it. And so we'll help them identify who are there. A lot of times they have the network and, you know, we don't presume to know all the physicians, but we can at least help them say, you know, here's the 15 different types of the different physicians that are in this market that can do these surgeries for you that have this specialty and here's their information. So, you know, reach out to them and here's where they're located and all that. Got it. So they'll reach out and the physician may say, oh, I'm part of this group you know, I can't join up with you or it's, hey, I'm I'm thinking about leaving here and that sounds like a great opportunity and they can invest alongside in the real estate. And, you know, we don't get involved in the operations piece of that. But that's sort of what I'm referring to. When I say they don't necessarily have the physicians in tow ready to go. Um, and we can help with that as well. And who is they? A private equity firm? This would be the physician group. Okay. So they may be backed by private equity. Got it. Um, but it's usually the physicians. And we work with some very um, business savvy physicians who have grown their practices throughout the country, really, where they they still practice medicine, but they've kind of turned into the CEO and and they want to grow. And, and they're basically running the the who the physicians are in and out of their practice and they're growing into different markets. So sort of like if a if a real estate company wanted to expand their brokerage into Houston, they know they like Houston, yeah. but they don't know who the right broker is to add there. They don't necessarily want to take one of their own and just plant them in Houston without all the relationships. It's the same thing with cases. Yep. So if you if you've got a physician that you put in Houston, they're not going to already have that patient base. So it's finding the ones in that market. Okay. So we're in Sherman. I'm a private equity backed uh, physician group come to you. I, hey, I still need to have five more physicians. Mm-hmm. Are those physicians signing leases or they're maybe being asked to join the ownership group to, to fill that up? And the leases are just, you're signing a lease with a doctor saying, you know, here's a five-year contract. You're going to bring all your surgeries in this category through this center. Right. It, some of that depends on the practice itself. They all have different types of leadership structures and and all that. But for from our purposes, it's really them just joining the practice group and yep. then being a part of the ownership of it. Got it. So what we'll always do, uh, or most cases, I don't want to say always, but we'll, we'll carve out an investment piece for the physician. So Got we it. may own it, but we'll have them put a certain amount of cash into the deal um, because they're the ones that are you know, driving the cases. And, and so we want them to have a, a stake in the deal as well. So they'll invest into that deal and we'll own it. And then they'll be part of the decision-making process of when to have the disposition event or, or anything along those lines. So how are y'all making money? Who are you charging? Is it just rent that you're making? Or are you making other ancillary uh, forms of revenue? It's it's pretty much rent. Sometimes we'll own, if it's a hospital, there's been times in the past where we've been part of the ownership of the operation. So we'll bring working capital. Okay. Um, and then we'll own part of the operations and we'll make money uh, on that. But that's 
that's typically bifurcated from real estate. Uh, you know, there's the Propco and the Opco and we, we keep those separate. We don't cross over into the the operations often. We will, we're happy to, and we have capital that will do that. Yeah. But usually ours are the real estate fees. So we're making, you know, money on development fees. Um, if it's a, if it's an opportunity where it's, uh, for instance, we've, we've built a number of ASC anchored medical office buildings where we build the ASC, it's on the ground floor, and then there's 40,000 square feet. And they want to take some of those, uh, some of that and some of its spec. And since we have the brokerage component, we'll be the land, landlord leasing rep. And then we can generate fees from from filling up the, the facility. And then ultimately, once it uh, hits the right occupancy, then, you know, with ownership's permission and the docs and all of that, then we'll we'll do the disposition. We'll, we can make fees off of that as well. Yeah. What's the only way or what's the way a deal like that goes south? They don't bring in, assuming no bad boy stuff, is it just they don't bring in the anticipated surgeries that they thought they could out of that market? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so that's why there's always, uh, there's always risk of that. Yeah. Um, most of the the ones that we will own, we're working with the types of groups that we feel really good about. We've seen their balance sheets, we've seen what they do, and we have so many reputable clients that we don't even have a question of. Even sometimes when they go in and they don't have the doctors yet, we'll you know, we'll take a flyer because we know yeah. they're they're good. But, you know, that and then there's lease up risk, obviously, in the yeah. scenario that I mentioned if you're not getting enough leases going and and you're, you know, you're not hitting the NOI that you need to because you don't have enough space filled. That's that's a risk as well. But, you know, those are all risks we're we're willing to take, especially with the types of groups that we're working with. We've been very fortunate. For sure. And I would imagine it's not like um, like when you're talking about NOI, it's not like a restaurant that might have 50 options around town to go in. It's, right. This is it's not like there's 50 surgery centers in Sherman. Right. It's kind of like <laughs> right. it is what it is. So there. That's right. I'm imagining it's not they don't have a ton of leverage to shop rates and shop deals because it's kind of like where the where the, we are the deal. Take right, it or leave it. Right. Yeah. Right. And we tr- try not to position it that way per se. Yeah. But we're I mean, but but you're right. Yeah. I mean, and if they have the re- kind of going back to what I said about the referral base, if they've got the referral base and they're getting all of these primary care docs that are sending them the patients that they need, then, you know, you have a pretty good idea and they do such a great job and they're healing patients and they're and they're doing what they need to do from a patient care perspective. I mean, and like we talked about before, it's fairly recession resistant yeah. even in the pandemic. Now, the pandemic was an interesting challenge because when they banned elective surgeries, um, and elective procedures, people don't realize what all is elective. Go on that for a second. Yeah. Well, what it, what's considered elective? So anything that's basically not emergent or a life or death situation that you have to have. Um, and I think there was probably some discrepancy from practice to practice. But I mean, yeah. if you kind of we we're talking about the spinal fusion thing, if you're if you can barely walk. But that's that's considered an elective procedure to be able to walk again <laughs> because you don't have to have it to survive. Now, you can make the argument that to live a full life, you'd need to be able to walk. But um, if you have that opportunity, um, but that was, you know, those are elective. If you need a, you know, a triple bypass surgery, you're not necessarily going to perish because you don't have that surgery. So that's elective. You're choosing to get that done. It's not something that you're, you've been mandated to get. So. Yep. That was, I mean, endoscopies, things like that, you know, uh, cancer screenings, things like that were all 
elective because you know do you really want to find out if you have cancer or not (laughs) but but that's that was the you know that was the scary part there for a while and luckily um you know and in texas we we opened that back up you know within a relatively normal amount of time and and i understand people were nervous and and all that but that's another thing is people were nervous about covid so a lot of people weren't even going to the doctor at all because even if they needed something they're like well i don't want to go to a hospital or i don't want to go into a clinic because there's all those sick people there so and i might get covid so you know it was touch and go there for a while there were people that were nervous and you know banks were nervous capital was nervous and all that but thankfully by the grace of god things are turning back the other direction and we're seeing so much activity right now it's it's kind of mind-boggling which is why we're we are expanding i love um, which it which is great that's great it's um, no industrial hey but it's a good segment well we but like i it. think health i think healthcare <laughs> in general is going to be a huge if if we can call it winter out of covid we're just going to be more health conscious right i think there's going to be more money right. flowing into the system and mm-hmm. that's going to impact you in a, in a good way absolutely um, i think it'll shift certain things i'm sure you know telehealth will get bigger but that's not a bad thing necessarily for bricks and mortar real estate it right. just changes the way things go, it'll it'll help pay, uh, it'll help doctors see more patients. It'll move us forward technologically. I mean, I think there's a lot of positives that will come out of it. And the bottom line is, people are going to continue to get sick. Yep. And I think it, what hopefully some of the lessons that we'll bring out of COVID is, we all need to be as healthy as we can possibly be before we get something like COVID. Right. So. You know, the data that's come out about the comorbidities of people that have had so many issues with COVID, which is terrible. If we can try to treat or prevent those things before we get some, you know, awful disease, then we'll all be better off as a society. And hopefully that's a message that permeates the culture um, remains to be seen. But I think I know what the word means, but I'm going to ask the idiot question because you said it like four times. Comorbidity? Comorbidity. What does that so mean? So a comorbidity is essentially if you have diabetes and you also you also tore your ACL, that's two different morbidities. Okay. So a comorbidity means if I got sick and I also have a heart condition. Yeah. So when you talk about someone that dies from COVID or with COVID, they if they have a comorbidity it means they died of covid or they got covid and they also have diabetes yeah so that's a comorbidity so sorry i didn't clarify that but that's what that means so if you've got the more more comorbidities that you have stands to reason that the worse off you're going to be just for health in general but especially if you get a disease or something like that so for the folks that had cancer and got covid that would be a comorbidity that's a comorbidity yep and i won't it's not for me to judge here on the podcast what they died from. That's correct. And yes. we'll leave we it stay out of that. We stay well. out of that. We, we stay let that out of all of that. Yeah, that let, is none of my business. That's none of our business. Um, <laughs> We're just real estate guys. I'm a nerdy it. data guy. That's, that's it. All I, that's You're a pretty cool nerdy data guy. They came up with some cool uh, fabric softener. Or, uh, fabric. <laughs> that was my wife, and she's actually your, your cool. Wife. She's actually cool. That's why you married her because of that brilliant idea. Well, here's and more. Here's the thing: when she met me. I was working at Applebee's. Yeah. So she saw my career trajectory and said, I'm grabbing a hold of this rocket ship and I'm going into the stratosphere. So I convinced her uh, to marry me. I mean, we met when we were 18 and then got married when we were 24. And so, yeah, so I convinced her before 
uh, before all the gray hair and all that, I convinced her to marry me. So I I covered that. The most important part I covered like right after college and then I was good to go. I love gray hair. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that. All right. Our final segment is going to be on senior house, seniors housing. Okay. And by the way, don't feel bad about senior, seniors. It, everybody says it differently. There's seniors you housing. Said seniors. I say senior. It's senior living or seniors housing. What's the difference? There is no difference. Okay, so you it's can say it both what ways. You, say. you can say it both ways. And well, I was just kind of copying what you yeah. you had said. Seniors housing earlier, yes. and you're right that it's seniors housing okay. or senior living. I'm a senior living guy. By yes, that's how I've said it. But that, when I heard you say seniors housing, I thought maybe yeah. I don't know enough yeah. here. When in Rome, when in Rome, and here we are. <laughs> um, okay, go through the different types again. Okay. There's anything from memory care, which is Alzheimer's, and then everything to kind of this new kind of what they call, I guess, do you even consider independent living seniors housing? It is. It is. It's not licensed. Okay. Um, so it's a little bit different than, and, and it's not needs-based per se. Okay. So assisted living, you have a mom or a grandparent that really needs help with activities of daily living. Okay. Um, so it's needs based. They need to go to a facility where they can have their meals prepared for them. They may have to be lifted to do certain activities, different things like that. So that's kind of the assisted living and it's licensed as such. Memory care is the highest level of acuity. That's when you're, you may be in assisted living and then you progress in a way, um, or I guess digress in a way that your uh, your Alzheimer's takes hold and and you really need more care. So you go into the memory care unit and okay. that's a lockdown unit because they'll, you know, oftentimes they'll wander and get into tough situations because they're not sure where they are and they're unaware uh, of different things. So um, that's the, the memory care. Independent living is really, um, think about it as your uh, your grandmother and her her husband passes away and she now lives in a house that she can't really maintain so much on her own. And maybe she's spending more money that she, than she needs to. And maybe she's fallen a couple of times, or maybe you're concerned about her well-being or her social activity. And you want her to go into a facility that's essentially a nice apartment, but it also has activities that they do. It also has shuttles that they can take to go to the to Walmart or go to the store or go to fun activities. It'll have a, a, a commercial kitchen where they serve meals in a in a you know in a big open area and there's a butterfly garden and there's a bar that they can go to and there's a cafe and there's all these different things um, and the types of facilities that that we're that we're uh, developing. Uh, and that's independent living. And then there's also skilled nursing, which we don't really do uh, so much skilled nursing, but that's kind of a, another level of high acuity, more more hospital type setting there. And the types of facilities that we really like that we're building right now, um, we've got a couple that are open and operating and a couple under development right now. We really like the full campus aspect of it. Okay. Where you go in as an independent living resident okay. and you either live, we, we, a lot of our campuses will build with cottages where basically they have their own house that they live in, but it's, it's independent living so they can have their home health services and all that. But, you know, maybe they have a go-kart to, to drive around and go to the, go to the dining room or the bar or whatever it is. And you're there in independent living. There's also higher density. So the apartments um, in the independent living as well, where you still have your own autonomy and all that, but you, you know, you have the levels of care if you need them. 
And then you progress to a point where you need assisted living. You know, maybe one, you know, it's a couple and one passes away and they want, they need more help than, than the other one did. So then that would progress into assisted living and that would be on the same campus. And then connected to that would also be memory care. So essentially, if it's, you know, if you're the adult child, which is the person whose parent is the one who goes into the facility, you would have them go live there and they live there ostensibly uh, you know, to the end because it's all in the same place and they get all everything that they need on the same campus in whatever setting that they need. They may never leave independent living yeah. and they may be in their cottage for the rest of their lives and be perfectly happy and never need anything more than that and maybe increase their levels of care, but that that may be perfectly fine for them. So we like that. We like that campus feel where it's got everything that you need and and essentially it's the, you know, the last place that you could could live for the next 30 40 years i was gonna say how long could somebody possibly live on that campus yeah as long as they as long as they want and who makes the decision of whether they're moving out of independent to the next assisted living is that usually the family or the person you always want it to be the family or the person okay um our operations teams will will go in and there's there's a clinical side of, of people nurses that are in the in those facilities they'll they'll do assessments in in those facilities and say hey we really think based on all these things that you need that it would be better for you to go you know from independent living to assisted living and a lot of them a lot of times people will live in independent living when they really need assisted living and their quality of life would be way better in assisted living so you want it to be their decision and you can't force someone to move out of one to the other but there's yeah. certain you know there's just certain suggestions suggestions that you have to make um but you always want it to be the the resident themselves and their family that that makes that decision so what is a um how big are these campuses so uh, it depends. Um, we've got um, some that are you know, one of the ones that we're building right now is, uh, you know, 100, 130 independent living and then 60 assisted living and 20 memory care. So, you know, somewhere along those lines where it's a larger independent living, um, a little bit smaller uh assisted living and then the smallest is the memory care and it also we try to right size it based on the market so there may be a market where it's just flush with memory care and and there's not great occupancies because there's so many of them so we'll 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 kind of scale that part of it down there may be some where there is no memory care and so we'll we'll right size it based on that and maybe assisted comes down and memory care goes up or independent goes down um, but it just depends. So, yeah. um, you know, one, one of the, it depends on the market as well. So one that we're building right now in Georgetown is about an $80 million project and it's right outside of the sun city community okay. in Georgetown, which is the, um, it's Pulte homes, 55 plus active adult community. Okay. And so that's basically, uh, a great opportunity where we can work with sun city and have them say, okay, we're right next to you and your community. If you want to move out of the home that you own in Sun City and just hop in your golf cart and drive your stuff over to our community, it's there. Um, and so that's a larger facility. Then we've got one that we're building in Norm Norman, Oklahoma, that's closer to 50 million. Um, and it's just, you know, we try to right size them based based on the market. And are you doing this with private equity or are you raising on a deal by deal basis or how are y'all capitalized right now? So we've got a number of partners that we use based on their appetites. So got we've it. got private equity 
that are fantastic. Uh, we've got family and friends more on the on the GP side that we work with uh, regularly. We've gathered a, a number of different groups that are fantastic to work with that we like that we you know we have all the documents in place that work well for everybody. They like what we're doing. We like the way that they operate. Um, and we've kind of done it on a deal by deal basis. You know, one of the things that, you know, we've talked about and, you know, hopefully would do at some point if it were the right fit is kind of put together a programmatic platform where we have someone that comes in and says, we'll handle GP, LP, um, and, uh, pursuit costs or whatever else it is. And we'd love to figure out a way to do a programmatic platform and, you know, scale up however we need to so far. And it's, you know, it's not terrible, but yeah. You know, we we put each deal together individually. Yeah. Do you all own your opco or do you work with third parties? We work with third parties. Okay. So that's a, a question in seniors housing yeah. or senior living, if you will, <laughs> um, of do you have operations in-house or do you partner with third party? And there's pros and cons to each. Some of it's capital-based. Some capital wants you to be the owner and the operator. Um, some don't want that. And we just, so what we did is a little bit of a hybrid of that. So when we first got into really heavily investing in senior, senior living, we, uh, now I'm thinking about seniors housing for senior living. (laughs) We decided to bring in experts, operations, industry experts to be as part of our MedCore team. Okay. So the first person we hired, Tiffany Coburn is a 25 year veteran of the senior housing industry everything from being an executive director all the way up to running teams that were running facilities all across the country for some of the big operators. And she basically helped school us as we went along to say, okay, this is what we need to do. She's involved in the, uh, in the design process when we're working with the architects, she, uh, she, she brings in and vets the third party operators that we bring in. Um, and then we actually hired subsequently uh, another guy named Jack Burt, who, you know, very similar pre- pedigree, um, who's involved in operations. So they help on the asset management side. They're they're uh, you know managing the managers. I mean, we don't yeah. want to we don't want to step on toes, but we need to be able to tell our investors that yes, this uh, these expenses went up, but that's normal. Yep. And this this stands to reason. Or you know, uh, conversely we're a little bit concerned about this. We're going to talk to them about it and see what we can do. Yep. Um, and so that's another thing we, we, we try to be as self-aware as we can and right. know what we don't know. Yep. And so one of the things that we didn't know and we're, we're learning, um, and we've learned a lot, I, I would say we know a decent amount now, fortunately, but we knew we weren't operations experts. We knew we didn't want to, at this moment in our, uh, in our company, start our own, uh, management company. So we brought in the expertise that that could do that for us. Yeah, I mean, anybody that gets all starry-eyed about uh, seniors housing or senior living, I don't think they really know how operate. I mean, it's it's people say it's real estate. It's really an operations it business. It is. It completely is. Um, so I'm just imagining one of these brand new campuses, and I know there's there's a lot of innovation kind of happening in that world. I'm just kind of curious, like what are the amenities that y'all are putting on site to make these residents love where they live? Well, a a big component that when you talk to somebody who has been in the facility or has a family member is the culinary experience. Okay. So they want to have the, the high end, uh, you know, crab and lobster and steak and all of that. So we make sure that the dining experience is top notch. 
Uh, we're actually working on a deal. I don't know how much I can say about this, but in Georgetown, and uh, I guess we'll announce it at some point, but with a with a uh, a very famous chef who will help run all of the restaurants. So that's the other thing is there will be multiple dining experiences and mul- multiple venues that they can go to. Got so it. for instance, in, um, in the Lake Houston one that we, that just opened, there's the main dining hall and then there's a cafe, there's a bar that they can go to a fully stocked bar. And so all of those different types of amenities, you know, and just providing different types of activities and, you know, everything from arts and crafts to, you know, they're taking a field trip to, you know, mall or to, you know, different things like that, but basically providing different experiences and social activities where you're not going into a facility. And unfortunately in COVID, it was kind of like this, but you're not just locked away in a room waiting to your, for your meals to be delivered to you. And then, you know, you languish away there and watch your TV, but really a active, lifestyle rather than just a place to go and, you know, pop yourself down for however long. Are you usually getting paid by some type of insurance or is it usually private? It's private pay. Okay. Yeah, it's private pay. And uh, there, there are Medicaid um, in some of the places where we've done acquisitions, um, there will be Medicaid licensed uh, units Yeah, and those will have a Medicaid component where you're collecting, you're collecting reimbursement from, from CMS. Is the fact that people are living longer and it's anticipated that they're going to just keep living longer and longer, I'm assuming that's a good thing for your business? It's a great thing. Yeah. I mean, we're just now hitting, um, if I can pitch seniors yeah. housing, pitch. we're just now hitting the front end of the baby boomer population yeah. where they're hitting the age that they're going. Because, I mean, it's 65 plus communities, but really you're looking more like late 70s, early 80s before you move into a lot of these types of facilities to your point of living longer and being healthier longer and all that. So um, it's definitely a good thing. And that's it also stands to reason why we like the full campus, the full uh, independent living, assisted living memory care, because, you know, like you said, you could go into independent living and live there for 20 years. And, you know, be perfectly happy and fine there. And then eventually you need assisted living and then maybe you need memory care or maybe you don't. But we like that aspect of it because you're really covering everything. And, you know, from the business aspect of it, you've got independent living, which is a feeder of assisted and assisted is a feeder of memory care. So you're kind of encompassing all of that, but definitely a good thing for society more broadly, but for the senior seniors housing industry. It's a, it's a good thing. We've talked about development. You guys also acquire. Mm-hmm. When you're acquiring, are you just looking for mismanaged stuff or like what's a reason why you would acquire uh, something? So we look for value add. I okay. mean, that's probably the most obvious thing you could say, but yeah. we're looking for, sometimes it's mismanaged. Sometimes it's just a bad situation. Yeah. Someone bought something and someone passes away. And so it's just not a good situation. Yeah. Sometimes there's a REIT that's looking to just shed assets. Yeah. They're in that part of their life cycle or, you know, COVID hits and there's just struggles and people are, you know, aren't meeting their loan covenants and they have to get rid of uh, an asset. So we try to find uh, the right markets, um, high occupancy markets that just have a bad situation that we could come in and maybe put some CapEx into it, uh, you know, spruce it up. And all of a sudden it looks like a brand new facility. It was already doing okay, but now it's entrenched in the community and 
look, now it looks beautiful. Hey, remember that that facility that used to look run down now looks great. Yep. Um, and this other one's occupied, fully occupied. This other one's fully occupied. We should we should consider that. So that's that's sort of our strategy. Is there, is, is everything that y'all do from the debt side? Is it all private banks or does does the government offer loan programs for stuff like this? Government, uh, d- the government does do that. HUD will do financing. Yeah. Um, most of what we've done, I don't think we've done a HUD deal. I should know that, but yeah. um, it's mostly private banks. Yeah, thank you, thank you. No, we we haven't, and it's been mostly um, private banks that we have relationships with. Um, but yeah, the government does do some of those. They just, as anything else, they take longer. Okay, one more kind of question, then we'll kind of bring her home. It's it's a little bit loaded, but you just said we're just hitting the curve. Mm-hmm. So I feel like for the last decade, being um, you know not in seniors, but always kind of keeping an eye on what's going on. That's been the like promise of senior, uh, the whole healthcare senior world is there's this huge boomer generation coming. Mm-hmm. So when you say that we're like at this inflection point, what's the next 10 years going to look like? Can you give us some data points? Sure. I mean, um, you know, off the top of my head, I can't tell you the exact numbers of people that are turning, you know, 80 every day, but it's the you inflection can't? point. I can't, I probably should, no, um, but it's a... <laughs> <laughs> but it's a lot. But the data point, I guess, is that the baby boomer population, which is what's defined as the age group, yeah. that's what's starting to hit that 74, 75 age. Um, and that's why we say it's an inflection point, because that age group, which is the baby boom, is just now hitting that age where they would even consider moving into a facility like Got this. It. So the next 10 years, uh, it, what'll be really interesting is um, COVID obviously slowed everything down. I yeah. mean, we had projects that we were supposed to get started in the beginning of last beginning of last year that thankfully got pushed to the end of last year and not just completely canceled. Another one that's supposed to that kind of got bumped to this year um, because it's a phase, you know, it's a it's a phase project, and you know, occupancy is hurt by people not being able to move in or tour um, and the attrition rate that goes on there. But development slowed down, obviously. So what'll be interesting is as this population starts to hit the age where they need these types of facilities, development has slowed dramatically. So there's going to be pent up demand. We're already starting to see it, um, thankfully, and hopefully that continues. But we're already starting to see the people that were holding off on moving their parents or moving themselves are now saying, okay, first of all, the great thing is all of these facilities and, and, you know, give the government credit for prioritizing the, the most vulnerable, but basically every assisted living and memory care and even independent living facility out there has gotten vaccinated. So now people have that comfort level of, okay, if I go there, if they're, they're in some community, we don't know how many people are vaccinated there. If they go into this facility, everyone's vaccinated. So we at least have that comfort level. So not only are are these things starting to open back up, but people have that comfort level and they're starting to move in. So we're already seeing occupancy beating what the projections were. And, you know, I think the the general consensus is that's just going to keep getting better as more and more people age into, into that um, that swath of the population that needs these types of facilities. And I think it's just going to get better and better. That's so awesome. I've gotten uh, a lot smarter on healthcare today. Wow. Well, I don't, 
I, I don't I, know how that happened exactly. I but. could keep going, but we might have to <laughs> save that for uh, for round two. Okay. This is fascinating, man. Well, good. I'm glad. I feel like I talk about it and think about it all the time. And yeah, I feel like the boring data guy. So um, I'm glad you found it interesting. You're, you're not the boring data guy. <laughs> this is this is real stuff. Well, now I'm going to ask you just a few personal and then we'll okay. we'll bring it home. All right. Do you have a childhood experience and even even hearing from you as we've been chatting leading up to this just about working and working at Applebee's and everything <laughs> else? But uh, I think I didn't mean to brag, by the way, like I <laughs> I was at Applebee's and then I was at Papa Doe. Yeah. So so I, the career trajectory really was real. It was. Um, I was I became a trainer at Papa Doe. So oh, wow. anyway, I, I needed to highlight my accolades there for a second. But anyway, <laughs> go on. Go on. Do you have a childhood experience that you kind of remember vividly that kind of shaped who you were? Whether it be a moment or yeah. playing sports or something like that? I think just generally speaking, I have parents and grandparents that raised me in a way that, you know, very focused on faith and family and work ethic. Yep. That sounds so generic, but it's just, they were the embodiment of that. Yep. You know, my parents, my, my dad, um, was, you know, read meters for the electric company when I was a, a kid, but, you know, just felt, uh, felt the calling from God that he wanted to get into counseling. And so, you know, he was working, my mom was working, they started having kids. And then all of a sudden he's, he's reading meters for the electric company and decides to go back to school and get his master's degree. So he's working all day, driving out to DBU at night and going back and forth. And this was before the internet. So if he's doing research, he's going into the library at all hours of the night. And my mom made the sacrifice to stay home with us because we needed to, she needed to be able to take care of the kids. And you know, having daycare or anything like that wasn't an option. So I just saw them all, both always work so hard and never complain about it yeah. and and raise us with the right values. My dad and mom were both people that would always apologize. I mean, they, they could admit when they were wrong, they were self-aware um, and they raised, they raised us that way. And I had grandparents that also had, you know, that example and so I would just say in general, they, they always made time for us. They were, I don't ever remember having a, a sporting event that they didn't show up to or a school event that they didn't show up to. And that just made a huge impact on me. That's and, awesome. and those focuses really, um, are what I've carried to today and what I try to do with my kids. I've got three small children, uh, and a wife. And I really try to emulate that as much as I can. But, um, I know that's not really a specific no, experience, but I mean, just no, like to me, it wasn't, you know, I talk to people sometimes about when, when I was at TCU and I, I would go to class two days a week and I would work full time three days a week. And then on the two days I went to school, I would work at night and, you know, they're like, wow, that's, that's crazy. I'm like, that's nothing compared to my dad yeah. having two kids working a full-time job and going to school at night and a, and a wife to keep happy as we all know how important oh, yeah. that is, you know, and my mom always worked her tail off. Uh, so, you know, those are just things that are ingrained, you know, my grandfather grew up, um, you know, in Navarro County, wasn't even in a city and was on a, uh, his bedroom was on the porch of their shack. 
So we're like one generation removed to living out in the middle of nowhere with nothing. Yep. And so for me, it's just, it, it would be an insult to them and their legacy to not do everything I could to make them proud, to, to work hard and, and, you know, be the kind of person I should be. Yeah. So I don't always succeed at all of that at the same time, but, um, I try really hard so that you have a good North star. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, we kind of talked about this, but America, even as we're at right now, we're, we're pretty soft. It's not too long ago that people really cherished hard work Mm -hmm. and actually grinded it out. I'm not saying it doesn't exist today, but just hearing stories like that, like we're not too far removed from those times when, um, you know, it wasn't easy. No. And I mean, for my grandfather who never, uh, the one, the, the porch shack guy, um, he, you know, for him to see his grandson go to TCU and his other grandkids, you know, go to college. I mean, that's, he, he never had those opportunities. And yeah. for, for us to, to be upset because our Wi-Fi is out is kind of a, yeah. a you know, that's a necessary thing to be upset about, especially if you're trying to do a podcast or something. But, um, but you know, we just have to put it into contextual terms of we have it pretty good yep. and let's make the most out of it and let's push ourselves forward and let's work hard and, and the sky's the limit if we can, if we can harness what we've been given by the people that left us the legacy. For so sure. I love it. Do you have a morning routine? I do. What do you do in the morning? I do. And this actually uh, was cultivated more during the pandemic because okay. we weren't going to the office, but I had to have something going on. So um, I get up in the morning before the kids are up, Okay, um, you know, five-ish and uh, go into there. We don't have a home gym or anything. So I go into the bathroom and do push-ups and sit-ups and do a little, <laughs> you know, body weight workout. And then every time, even during the pandemic, I would shower and shave. And then I may just walk into my room and start working on the laptop, but that's my morning routine. I don't, um, I don't eat breakfast or anything. So, so I started doing that during the pandemic. And then once we started going back to the office, which we just recently started going back to the office, I was like, okay, I can't lose that because I've felt too good. So I had to move it up a little bit because I knew I was going to get in my truck afterwards and drive into the office. But um, that's kind of my morning routine. Just get a quick workout in. And then even when I'm at home, shave every day. That was actually something I learned from my, uh, the aforementioned grandfathers. He was in the military and he said that, um, and when they would talk to you about being a POW, they said that do everything you can, if you're a POW to get a razor and to shave every day, because the morale that you have by doing something meaningful and keeping yourself clean and making yourself feel better huh. keeps you from being disheartened and depressed and all of that. And so I've always uh, thought about that. And then once I was at home, not that I was a POW in my own home, but yeah. um, it's you know the same concept. I, if I was just putting on a button up so I looked decent in a Zoom call, um, I was at least clean shaven and showered and you know hair fixed, gray and all, and. Um, so that's my, that's my morning routine. I love it. Not terribly exciting, but I love it. It's kind of, uh, it's like general, um, Oh, what's his name that gave the UT commencement speech and said, if you want to McRaven, yeah, McRaven, yeah. if you want to basically win at life, make your bed every morning. Yeah. Similar right. kind of concept. Right. Yeah. 
All right. What's the best advice that you've been given throughout your your life? And then we'll I'll stop peppering you with questions. Throughout my life or in my business career? We'll do business. Business career, I think, uh, is a um, guy that I work for named Lee Roberts. He always said, it sounds so simple, but I've just, I've learned it over and over and over again. And I actually applied it at Applebee's in Papado. Um, but when he said it, when he verbalized it, it made so much sense. And he said, the most important thing that you can do is manage other people's expectations. Yeah. And that permeates so many different things that we do. And it highlights, uh, although no, not explicitly how important communication is, Yeah, because if, you know, one thing I learned over and over again is I'm I'm kind of a people pleaser. So I would try to just do everything that everybody told me as fast as I could. So if I'm working on a feasibility study back when I was a consultant and they said, can you have this done in three days? I'd say, yeah, no problem. When, you know, I should give them 30 days Yeah. Um, because that's probably um, commensurate with the amount of time that it takes. And so I would always try to do that. And he just, you know, would calm me down and be like, you need to manage people's expectations because if you tell them 30 days, then they'll expect 30 days. If you tell them three days, they'll expect three days. And you'd much rather tell them 30 and deliver in 20 than tell them three and deliver in 10 or three and deliver in four because people make plans based on what you tell them. So that was probably the best. It's very simple, but it, it it's always stuck with me because over and over again, and even people who work for us now, I, I say, I try to tell them that because, you know, some people have the affliction of being a people pleaser like I am, and yeah. you just want to deliver everything that everybody wants. And as long as you let them know, then, then you're in good shape. Especially for folks early in their career where yes. they're just trying to like, prove something. Right. And um, I, and there's a balance too, right? Yeah. I mean, and that's also key. So if you tell them, Hey, it's going to be three days and then it's two days, then you're an overachiever. Yep. You know, I mean, if you tell them one day and it's two days, then you're a failure. If you tell them three days and it's two days, you're an overachiever. So that's important, you know, throughout your career. And then the older I've gotten, the easier it's been for me to, to tell people, well, no, sorry, hold on. It's going to be X number of days or we can't do that or we can do that. And when I was younger and more insecure, I would just try to deliver everything I possibly could. And um, so that's been a good every, mantra. Every for me. gray hair tells a story <laughs> of when we overpromised and that's, underdelivered. That's right. Or even overpromised and delivered yeah. to our own detriment. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Nick, this was awesome. That's great to be here. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm impressed with your setup. You got Johnny over here, who's a wizard, and got this nice studio. And man, this is this is beautiful. It's nice to be back in Fort Worth. I Thank feel like I don't get over, over here enough. Well, hopefully uh, we can change that. And if today was the start, yeah, that's a win too. Absolutely, I agree. Thanks again, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.